There's been a number of comments about uh, what I said a couple nights ago about this world we live in and all of our actions, our thoughts, our words, deeds have consequences. And uh, it's a can be a heavy thought when we look back. And it, it takes a, a right attitude to handle the concern or the fear that comes up when we realize that it does matter how we are and that we live in a responsive world. Like how we are affects what's going to come back. I think about it sometimes as being in a frictionless place and uh, sometimes you can get this effect on ice at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. It's a science museum. They have some things that are frictionless and you know you turn this way and then you're going to turn back the other way. I forget exactly how that works but it just demonstrates this principle that in this world if you push, unless you have something to push off of, you can't really push. And if you do have something to push off of, you create an equal and opposite motion. So this tells us something, <laughs> you know, that it's a, uh, confusing for us, I think, because it's not, it's not necessarily happening in that moment, you know, so we miss this, this fact that this is very much a self-created world. And in particular, our problems or the appearance of problems is very much self-created. It's simply the reflection of what's come before. So knowing this is sort of a nice introduction to the last topic. So we've been talking about basic goodness as a refuge, basic goodness and the movement of generosity, basic goodness as a means to transform negative mind states last night. And tonight, basic goodness as a motivation, as a sort of force for action or for change, and how that works in a frictionless universe. You can imagine, you know, as we uh, trust in basic goodness more and more and are able to let it be the cause or the source of our motivation or actions in the world, then that's going to be reflected back at us. You know, in a way, when I reach for something, I create the opposite, right? Well, what happens when I give everything away? <laughs> I, I, I tell this story a lot because I just find it great. But uh, Steve and Kamala, who, you know, are contemporary Buddhist Vipassana teachers, but they have a real uh, attraction for the sort of the traditional feeling of Theravada Buddhism, I should say, and they really they really uh, imbibe the kind of core values of that kind of uh, Asian Theravada culture in some ways, at least. And I remember once, I think it was Steve, but it might have been Kamala saying that uh, that they were just, I don't know, having trouble meeting the expenses or or just needing more support. And so they decided to start giving more, <laughs> you know, to, to relinquish. 
as a cause for generosity to flow the other way. That's sort of an interesting, you know, interesting approach to living because it's just the opposite. When we're feeling a little tight, we tend to act tight. And um, I'm wondering what would happen if we took up the other. And especially in light of this frictionless world, you know, so if we're giving everything away, the opposite movement, we set in motion the opposite movement of being replenished or supported or taken care of. When we hold tight, we set in motion the opposite, which is the falling away, the taking away. There's a quote from Aya Kema. She's a German Buddhist nun. She's dead now, but she taught uh, in the 80s and 70s and 80s, and I'm not sure when she died, maybe early 90s. Loving kindness can be cultivated in the heart with great benefit to ourselves. Someone once said, quite rightly, that's an ego trip. It is. As long as we have an ego, every trip we're on is an ego trip. But at least this one, this one trip, uh, at least this is one trip in the right direction. This journey goes toward the ultimate destination, egolessness. Because the more loving kindness there is in the heart, the less ego. The more ego diminishes, the more love can come from the heart. When other people are taken into the heart, the self has to step aside to make room. So this, this motivation of basic goodness or cultivating basic goodness as a motivation for everything we do in life, initially it starts as an ego trip. I mean, this is something I want to do to take care of myself. You know, in the same way that if someone says, well, I'm going to I'm going to be more generous. I'm going to practice generosity to create the causes for love and goodness flowing my way. I mean, the Buddha says this. This is not, you know, somebody's, you know, misunderstanding of the teachings. He says many times that you want to be happy. And he's talking to people in a very relative sense. You want to be happy? Cultivate generosity. Cultivate virtue develop the mind. These are the three sources of positive things coming your way in a very mundane sense, in a very kind of ordinary sense. So normally, you know, we think, well, I need to go back to school if I want good things to come my way, or I need to, you know, I mean, what do we think when we want good things to come our way? Buying lottery tickets, hoping for the best, uh, wishing things were different than they are. But the Buddha is offering something very straightforward. Well, cultivate generosity. And so we can work with basic goodness in this way. I mean, we're going to have a story anyway about how it all works and who we are and all kinds of things. Why not have a story that involves basic goodness you know, every chapter, every paragraph has something to do with basic goodness in our story. We talk to each other all the time about stuff. What would it be like if what we, you know, we always ended up talking about basic goodness? I mean, generally, I don't know if this, how true this is, but, you know, the stereotype is that, uh, 
you know, mostly when we talk to our friends, we're complaining about this or that. And you could just as easily be talking about some flavor of basic goodness, something beautiful we saw. Jenny shared in the small group today about, you know, some entrepreneurs getting together and having a all good internet website or news station or radio station. And we all probably felt like I did, you know, like, right, you know, like <laughs> no one would ever want to. But it's really true. We, we actually like basic goodness. And that's what we have to discover, that it actually, like Donna being generous, living for the benefit of all beings, this motivation, it's not just a good idea or just sounds good. It actually feels good. In the same way, being stingy, feeling frightened, hurts. It doesn't feel good at all. It's a very narrow place to be living. When we cultivate this kind of story and, and use it as a motivation for our, our life, then it, it makes it a lot easier to be mindful of afflictive states because they really stand out in contrast. You know, if somebody's a little slow on the highway and we've been cultivating the attitude of basic goodness in all ways and the motivation of basic goodness in all ways and we find the slow person on the highway upsetting, you know, and, you know, we would never, you know, do anything obvious, but inside we think, oh, you know, whoever we think is a stereotypically bad driver, we think without seeing that person, that's that person. You know, and we're kind of looking for confirmation, what kind of car is it, you know, other attributes. <laughs> This is how our mind works. That's why we're all laughing. Because we know we have these preconceived ideas of who's bad, who's cool, you know, people that are okay to reject because they are bad and they're just there to be rejected, they're there to be judged um, because they're bad, they're wrong, they're inappropriate, they're... And we don't often say this. But when we are cultivating basic goodness, these kinds of attitudes really start to stand out. We see them. Oh. And there, then there's this choice. Is this what I want to set in motion? This kind of heart, this kind of mind. Because that's what we set in motion in this world. If we cultivate this attitude, then that's what we get. The Dalai Lama calls this the voice of self-cherishing attitude. From one of his earlier books, The Way to Freedom, he says, talking to his self-cherishing attitude, your uh, domination of my mind is a thing of the past. From now on, I will not obey your orders. You've only done me great harm by your devious means. From now on, do not pretend that you are working for my own happiness, because I have realized that you are the great enemy and the source of all my frustrations and sufferings. If I do not abandon you and work for others, you will again plunge me into the sufferings of unfortunate rebirth. And you can think about this as future lives or just taking rebirth in the next moment of feeling stingy, feeling needy, feeling like nobody cares. 
The Dalai Lama in uh, his book, uh, The Way to Freedom. I bet if we took the time, this would be nice for those of you who drove up with other people, you know, if you run out of things to talk about. Stories about the cat that wanted to come into the <laughs> retreat center or your experience with the ice and the open water. You could just share stories of um, that motivation being predominant in your mind, that motivation to live for the benefit of all, which of course includes ourselves. It doesn't exclude ourselves. It's really easy to mistake that sense of neglecting ourselves, taking care of others, that that living for the benefit of all requires some self-sacrifice. It's just the opposite. You know, we're we're cultivating this profound sensitivity to humanity, to the needs of living beings. And of course the most obvious living being is this living being right here. And what have we cultivated? We've cultivated great patience, great understanding, great forgiveness, great compassion and generosity. We'd be so fortunate (laughs) to have taken that vow to live for the benefit of all beings because we would be the direct beneficiary of that vow. So you could, you know, on your trip home, you could, or when you see your Dharma friends, you could share stories of times in our life. We could... This, these could be storing articles in your new website, Jenny, you know, where people tell stories of moments when they were able to live from that place and how free they felt, how liberated they felt in service. A little bit later, I'll read from um, Space Nerd's name. the Vipassana teacher in Seattle, uh, Rodney Smith. I remember. Um, I'm going to read from his article. Some of you know he has been a hospice director for a long time. He's also a a long-time Vipassana teacher in Seattle and also teaches at IMS, has been for a long time. And he's going to talk, uh, when I read, I'll read about how he understands service in this way, in this really liberating way. So we can reflect on what the Dalai Lama said about this self-cherishing attitude. So we could, you know, like in terms of swapping stories, to hear stories of times when service or giving our heart away or taking care of, responding to what's in front of us felt so liberating. And we could also swap stories about times when the mind was really uh, caught in some self-cherishing attitude, whether it's around fear or around greed, and just how constricted those times have been. And how easy it is for us to justify them it seems so, it can, we can define it as a false compassion, like I'm just trying to take care of myself. 
And I think this place is really confusing, so I don't, I'm not suggesting that it should be clear to us, like the difference between um, being caught in self-cherishing view and taking care of ourselves in a healthy way, or abandoning self-cherishing view and neglecting our actual needs, sort of some version of self-hatred by thinking that our needs aren't important can be neglected. Joseph Goldstein wrote a nice article, I thought, a while back about bodhicitta. I mentioned the first night. Bodhicitta is often the word that's used uh, to talk about this motivation to respond to everyone's suffering to respond in this universal way, including ourself. The actual word bodhicitta means awakened heart. Bodhi means awakened. Chitta is a word for heart or mind. So awakened mind, awakened heart. Some of you who are at the old center know the calligraphy that was behind the speaker um, at the old center. That big calligraphy was just the bodhicitta um, Chinese characters. Joseph calls this the deep aspiration to awaken from the dream of ignorance in order to benefit all beings. So it's really the motivation behind our practice. I'll read a few paragraphs. He says, But is this a realistic aspiration for us? Is it really possible to cultivate such an altruistic motivation given the great mix of qualities within our own minds? Even His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta but deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So I think this is a nice invitation from the Dalai Lama that like, don't get into pretending that we're living for the benefit of all beings. But we can begin to recognize and be honest that we do respect. We respect it as an idea, as a possibility or as an aspiration. Because that itself is planting a seed. You know, just acknowledging our attraction to the idea of living for the benefit of all beings. Then we don't feel uh, like we've made a terrible mistake if instead of picking up the phone because we know it's from somebody who's needy and they need our, but we don't really have the energy tonight and I'll get back to them tomorrow. And then we hate ourselves for the rest of the evening. We like ruin our evening because we feel so guilty. It wouldn't have been that hard to pick up the phone and connect it with the person for a few minutes. You know, I'm so selfish or something like that. Because we have this ideal of ourselves as a bodhisattva, living for the benefit of all, dedicated to bodhicitta, this awakened heart, awakening for the benefit of all. And here's my opportunity and I turned it down. And then we, we immediately swing into some self-constructed hell where, you know, we've got all the supporting evidence readily at hand why we'll be burning for a long time. <laughs> so just to, I, and you know, especially coming from somebody like the Dalai Lama who we all put up on this pedestal because... It's easy when we don't actually know somebody and they wear a really neat costume. <laughs> and, 
and they say really inspiring things. <laughs> but the fact is we don't really know. I mean, that's the truth. We don't really know. And so it's really nice when somebody like that shows some humility and says, but deep inside me, you know, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. Now that's kind of nice not to have to pretend. You know, I know our cynical minds say, yeah, but that not pretending is a pretend. (laughs) It's amazing how our negative mind states, I'm just sharing my own, so (laughs) I'm not projecting onto you. Some of us have, you know, some of us have deep strains of of mistrust of authority figures. Joseph Goldstein goes on and says, if we too can realize how valuable and beneficial it is, then we simply plant the seed of this bodhicitta in our own mind, in our mind, and slowly let it grow and take root in our lives. We begin each day or each period of meditation with the resolve, may I quickly attain liberation for the welfare and happiness of all beings. When we go from the understanding that our Dharma practice inevitably helps others to make the benefit, uh, helps others to making the benefit of others the very motivation to practice, this change of understanding has a transforming effect on how we move through the day. <coughs> I've added that. I, you know, I remember Joseph talking about this uh, back when I was studying more with him in the 90s and. Since then, I, I've really made this part of, you know, almost every day when I'm doing my little recitation at the beginning of my morning sit, I really reflect on practicing for the benefit of all beings. May this awakening process, whatever good is coming out of my practice, may it be a cause for happiness, freedom from suffering, and liberation for all beings. And it always makes me happy to have that intention, to be able to find that intention. And I don't feel responsible for like figuring out how that's going to look today. All I know is it feels really good to plant that seed. That whatever work I'm doing, whatever spiritual practice I'm doing, formally and informally, may it be a cause for the happiness and the liberation of all beings. And then I go right from there, right from that motivation, and I act on it. And I do a little bit of loving-kindness practice, anywhere from a couple minutes to ten minutes. And uh, it's so nice not just to have the motivation, but then to do something about the motivation, to actually act. Joseph, near the end of this article, says, We move from empathy, which is a sympathetic feeling for others, to the feeling of compassion. Compassion here is not simply a warm feeling. It also contains within it a strong motivation to act. The Vietnamese master Thich Nhat Hanh expresses this very well when he said, expressed this very well when he said, compassion is a verb. Compassion means we practice an active engagement with the suffering of the world in the world, responding to the various needs of beings in whatever way is possible and appropriate. The field, I'm skipping a bit, the field of compassionate response is limitless. It is the field of suffering beings. 
What is important is that we water and nurture the seeds of bodhicitta within us, cultivating the intention to benefit all. And this is that that willingness to act, so to find that motivation, you know, to feel basic goodness, and then right with that basic goodness, we'll see the birth of compassion or that that motivation to take care of. Just like uh, I forget who was saying it, um, but I read a quote the other night about finding oh it was Sylvia Borstein finding a baby on the doorstep. You know, that's left behind. You know, and that motivation, I mean, I I see it all the time. You know, that's not my responsibility. It's amazing, like walking to work, walking to Common Ground in the morning, seeing some trash on the sidewalk. You know, it's like when it gets close enough to Common Ground, then it's my responsibility. <laughs> but if it's more than like 100, 150 meters, it's not my responsibility. And I see that, and I see the constricting effect on my mind. Because, you know, I'm trying to be mindful when I'm walking to common ground before my morning sit, or when I am walking. And uh, so, there it is. I notice my mind seeing the trash. I notice the intention, the impulse to pick it up, like that would be a good thing to do. And then I feel, I notice the nudgy, oh, but then i got to carry it, you know, a block and a half or two blocks or whatever, you know. And then leaving it behind and noticing I'm inhabiting a more constricted world for a while. And it's like we, when we actually act on this motivation, it is a moment of liberation. We are liberating ourselves from the smallness of our minds, from our narrow constricted views. Every time we're a little bit more patient than we want to be, every time we give a little bit more than feels like the stingy self wants to do, we liberate ourselves from that particular narrow, heavy state of mind. You know, I, I see this a lot in my relationship with Wynn, where for whatever reason, being in a bit of a funk or tired or hurting in some way, you know, and uh, having, which seemed like in the moment, really good reasons to say something that would be hurtful, you know, and then just finding it within myself. Like when I do it, then then I immediately have to inhabit that constricted world of being the mean person, being the hateful person, being the one who doesn't care, being the one who judges. You know, and it's just not a pleasant place to be. And every time, you know, there's enough wisdom and that impulse isn't picked up, picked up it's like we enter a liberated state. We are not that, we are liberated from being the person who would have said that statement. And that's, we want to understand liberation in that very practical way. Like if you had a bad sit before the talk or a bad walking period and your mind was all over the place, you know, you could be ruining your life right now, dwelling on you know, reinforcing thinking in ways that reinforce the notion of being a really bad meditator, wasting your time here on retreat. Or you could be liberated from that reality by not doing that, by doing something else, like forgiving yourself, 
or understanding your really bad walking period in terms of cause and effect, not in terms of somebody who was bad. Seeing it as a natural, inevitable movement of nature, causes and conditions. So this is what we mean by constructed reality. And in a way, the Buddha first taught how to skillfully participate in constructed reality. Okay, it is constructed reality. Let's get good at construction. You know, as long as we're in this constructed reality, we might as well might as well be really good at constructing reality that feels good to be in. So he says, well, construct reality around dana, around sila, around bhavana, these you know, generosity, virtue, non-harming, and uh, and developing. Ease in the mind, serenity in the, in the mind and heart. And then we realize, oh, that's not, I mean, that's not a bad place to inhabit. If we're going to inhabit a reality as a self, that's a pretty nice place to inhabit. And then in that really, really nice place, we realize the only thing that's off in that really nice place is the sense of separation. All of a sudden it stands out. We don't notice the pain of separation now because we're so busy about competing and wondering what people think about us and wondering what we think about other people. It never or hardly ever stands out, this, this weight of separation, this sort of subtle existential uneasiness. But when we start living in harmony and feeling loved and loving, then it really... It's like, oh, wait, this can't be right. It really brings on a deeper investigation. Tara Brock, in one of her teachings, uh, talks about bodhicitta with the, in terms of the breath that I, in a way that I really like. She talks about the receptive and the uh, active aspects of this motivation. Or just generally, you could think of this in terms of this basic goodwill. Like there's a receptive mo- uh, movement where we inhale, and uh, we have to inhale, we have to be willing to receive the world as it is. And it doesn't matter if we're living in a little corner of the universe, and uh, like Minneapolis, and we're not really that aware of what's going on because the world is being modeled right here in our own minds, in our own lives. So, you know, whether we're, we've got connections and we, we have, we're intelligent and we study and we travel and we have a good sense of what's going on in the world, or we're a very simple person who can't read or write and lives in one little place and never really has gone anywhere except that place, still we can breathe in, we can receive the world as it actually is. We have to be careful about the kinds of judgments we have for people who haven't been around. You know, there are more than a few examples of saintly people who were illiterate and uh, didn't didn't have uh, too many diverse experiences in terms of meeting different kinds of people or traveling to different places. And yet, their wisdom, uh, their insight, their love really changed things 
for our people, change the world, really. So we can, let's just reflect for a few minutes on this receptive side. So it's like when we breathe in, we're basically saying this moment as it is, this is my teacher, I'm going to receive it completely. So this is the receiving, the freely receiving, the fearlessly receiving. Because there's no generosity, there's no goodness without intimacy. In order to be good, in order to contribute, in order to add something of value, we have to be connected first. So the first move is always this breathing in, this receptivity, the connecting. This is from Jack Kornfield's book, uh, Path with Heart. He's talking about compassion here. He says, compassion may at times give rise to action, and at times it may not. It doesn't arise in order to solve problems. Yet out of compassion flows action whenever it need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has a fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things, to relate to all things. And then he quotes uh, Chogram Trungpa, this um, Tibetan Rinpoche, who says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What you are, what are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if a mosquito lands in it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the wor world. Now, this is a good thing to hear near the end of a retreat because a lot of what happens as we stick with the process of sitting and walking and sitting and walking and really being devoted to the inner space of our experience and uh, leaving behind social activities for a period of time. When we really devote ourselves to that, it is this uh, kind of opening to rawness, to a profound sensitivity. We keep breathing in, we keep opening, we keep turning toward the next moment, no matter how bored we feel, no matter how restless the mind or body is, no matter how much rage arises or greed, lust arises. We just keep turning toward it. That's all we know. You know, it's like as much as we think there's got to be another instruction, you know, we realize as we think about it, what have the teachers said? All we remember to do is, well, now it's this way. Now it's like this. Can this be okay? 
can the heart open to this? Can the heart receive it? And that that letting in of experience really tenderizes the mind and heart. And we need this receptive movement. Otherwise, we're a very tight, defended, rigid thing. We're not really good for much in a fluid world being that way, being tight in that way. wanted to read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho. Let's see, maybe I'll just read a few things. We're running out of time. So this is again from um, Ajahn Sumedho's chapter in um, the book Voices of Insight, which is a collection of articles by some of the Vipassana teachers dedicated to Ram Das after his stroke. They got together and put this book together so that the income from the book would support his medical pain, his medical bills after his stroke back in the, it's been a little bit more than 10 years ago now. So Ajahn Sumedho's chapter is called Nothing is Left Out. This is just some paragraphs from that. In practicing metta, however, we deliberately avoid clinging to faults and weaknesses. We are not blind to them. We are not promoting them. Rather, we maintain an attitude of kindness and patience towards defects in ourselves and in others. In this way, we develop a sense of well-being, recognizing that everything belongs in the totality, that there is nothing we can think of or imagine, nothing that has ever happened to us that doesn't belong. Now that, that alone could be a powerful teaching for us, just to, not to believe that, but to reflect on that, like, is that true now, that everything belongs? Some of you uh, know that Ram Das's teacher in India was Neem Karoli Baba, famous Indian saint. Seems like a pretty amazing person. And he also was a teacher for other Westerners. Uh, Hindu saint. And uh, one time when Ram Das was leaving India, I'm assuming most people know Ram Das, he was a kind of a real icon in the 60s and 70s and uh, started out as a psychologist at Harvard University doing research in LSD and got into spiritual practice in the mid 60s and wrote a, a book that affected a lot of people, a number of books. The first book was Be Here Now, which is you have to take a look at it, at it if you have never seen it. There are copies everywhere. So <laughs> Anybody in their 50s probably has one in their bookshelf somewhere. But anyway, his teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, said to him, like Ram Das, who was, seems like a little clingy as a disciple, you know, really had this strong devotion and emotional relationship to his teacher and not wanting to have to leave him asked for some teaching, and uh, Nareen Karoli Baba said to him, never throw anybody out of your heart. And he really he really worked with that uh, for probably to this day. So that's just another way of, of this, like, does everything actually belong? Do we ever have to throw anything out of our heart? 
is there a way to protect ourselves? Like, if we're not protecting ourselves, in a sense, we've thrown ourselves out of our heart. So what would that look like? So to use it as a, as a reflection to help illuminate the moment, not something hard that we can use to judge ourselves. <clears throat> a little later, a couple pages later, Ajahn Sumedho says, this whole process is one of purification. In practice, we can begin to release the negative emotions and impurities we hold within us as they start to rise up into our consciousness. If we are simply mindful of these unpleasant states and we can see them with kindness and acceptance, they begin to move away. But as long as we take the view that something is wrong with us, as long as we identify with them, we will push them down again saying, oh, I mustn't think like that. Then the purification process cannot take place. Because of our aversion and refusal to accept them, the negativity stay with us and begin to accumulate. accumulate. So, one of the things that um, just brings up such great intimacy among Dharma friends is when they share with each other about their own personal experience with this purification, with their own adventure of staying with something that was unbearable, like they didn't want to have to feel it, whether they're on retreat or just in daily life. How many times, even in these four days, has somebody shared in the small group exactly that, like being with something that was really hard to be with? And we all get an intuitive sense how transforming it is to stay with experience just because it is the way that it is. That's like, that's all we know. It's just to stay with it. Just to keep including it. To keep believing or to keep um, practicing with this teaching that everything belongs. There's nothing that doesn't belong. It can't be other than the way it is right now. Ajahn Sumedho a little later says, so we begin metta practice with loving kindness toward our own body, all its organs, its functions, its mental habits. This metta then spreads out toward relatives, friends, those living far away, all human beings, those born and not born, all animals, insects, birds, fish, reptiles, all angels and demons, gods and goddesses. In the whole universe, nothing is left out. We have a sense of totality of being, which we can then let go of not out of aversion, because we see it for what it is and are no longer caught up in preferring this, resenting that, the endless struggle with the conditions. Instead, there is much more of a sense of equanimity toward the whole conditioned realm because we are no longer so fascinated or bound by this realm. We are able to let it go. And in that letting go and non-attachment is liberation. But this equanimity, this letting go, isn't a detachment. You know, as the Buddha says, equanimity is a boundless and measurable state, exalted state. It's a beautiful state of mind, like loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy are beautiful states of mind. So these are just some reflections on that receptive part of this motivation, where we have to let it in, we have to breathe in the moment. We have to trust that this moment has something to teach the heart. It's teaching the heart that it's okay to let it in. It's okay to be fully 
exposed or vulnerable or undefended in the moment. And we just keep practicing. It doesn't mean that we're successful. Like we try to open, but we can't. But can we open to that? It just sets up the next moment. Well, can I receive that failure of not being able to open and any judgment that comes with it? Can I breathe that in? Let that be the way that it is now. We can become the first fully enlightened being to have uh, realized that full enlightenment through one failure after another, realizing and accepting one failure after another. There has been no failure that I haven't been able to breathe in. (laughs) I've studied with all the great teachers and I have failed in each situation. (laughs) But I have completely breathed that in. You know, allowed that to be. That terrible failure. Because our normal ideas, you know, that, oh, I hear that's a good teacher. I'm going to go practice with her and realize what she has to teach, you know. And then I'll spice that up with a little practice with this person and I'll go do this kind of retreat. And it's like we're putting together a resume that then eventually is going to look so beautiful that we must be enlightened, you know, because we've done all the right things. So maybe there's a different way. (laughs) So, basically, the receptive part, we have to open to what we don't want to open to. It's not about opening to what we're happy opening to, but it's what we're uncomfortable (laughs) opening, what we feel is dangerous to open to, that somehow might contaminate us or destroy us or stain us forever. It's not that we have to go looking for humiliation. We just keep breathing in. You know, and if that's what's on our table, if that's what's in front of us, then we do breathe it in. But it's not like we go looking for difficult people. But we appreciate the difficult people and the difficult situations when they arise. If you want more information about this, Carlos Castaneda, in talking about Don Juan, his teacher, has a lot of uh, stories about the petty tyrant uh, and how valuable petty tyrants are are in our lives, breathing them in. So a little bit about this active. So then we we breathe in, um, you know, this willingness to receive the present moment. And then coming out of that is the motivation. May this life be a benefit for all beings. And like uh, Joseph Goldstein says, this is a powerful motivation to act, not a need to act. We're not neurotically in need of acting but we're not afraid of action we're really ready to act ready to respond to take care of ourselves to take care of others there's that wonderful quote from Rilke I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world I may I may not ever complete the last one but I give myself to it So I'll read uh, a little bit from Rodney Smith's article about service. Because he does, you know, he's really spent a lot of his professional career since his early years practicing in Asia as this hospice director. And uh, just some practical advice about this breathing out and responding and just learning from his experience so we don't make the 
common mistakes people make in service. He says, the chapter is called uh, Service, Expressing Our Practice. The difference between serving and what I call helping is the difference between being alive and being depleted. Helping is based on sacrifice, not strength. It is giving something to someone for a particular reason. Its intention is self-enhancement at the expense of someone whom we regard as underprivileged. The helper is rewarded by knowing that he or she is better off than the person being helped. When we help someone, subliminally we pass on the message of inequality. In doing so, we diminish that person as a human being. We hold those we help in a fixed perspective and often refuse to allow them to grow. A little later, he says, our minds can then force another into an unequal relationship. Our minds can force another into an unequal relationship, but not our hearts. Genuine warmth cannot exist unless there is equality. Love sets no limits and harbors no judgment. When, when we serve, we are meeting and connecting through a reciprocal affection, not through comparison and evaluation. We are being served as much as they are. A lot of us are in serving professions, and I bet you remember moments where it felt so enlivening to be in that experience, and other moments when you're being the helper, you know, using the way Rodney Smith defines it, where it was so depleting being in that experience. He says later, uh, service comes from the perception that we are not isolated beings. The joy that most of us feel in service is the joy of generosity, the joy of immediate union. The yearning of our hearts is for the union of commonality, the union, union of inclusion. Our quest for aliveness becomes like the arrow of a compass, always pointing in the direction of connection and service. And he really likes this idea of coming alive like this exhalation, giving ourselves away to the moment, responding in a loving, compassionate way to ourselves and others, is what, like the barometer, the way to negotiate this world of service, of giving, is coming alive. What allows us to come alive? And we really have to let go of ideal, idealizations, like, the world needs my help. I need to do something about global warming or I need to do something about this or that as opposed to seeing like how we can give our life away in a way that brings us alive, makes us alive. Because sometimes we go after the, the big, the glory, but we don't come alive because there's something the world is asking of us, but we don't want to do that work. We don't want to clean the bathroom or we don't want to call our mother, you know, we want to go lobby the legislature for this change or that change. So we need a barometer, otherwise we don't really know how to move in this world. So the barometer is what helps the heart come alive. Because we come alive when we're really connecting. So we need something where we can really connect. And that's going to be very personal. I mean, it's really... A matter of our personal karma where we'll come alive. Some of people it's like in a very low-key way, you know, just tending their garden 
Other people it's raising children. Other people it's doing this or doing that. But we all know when we come alive. Oh, this is what uh, helps us come alive. He, he talks about, uh, he spent a while uh, working in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And uh, he asked one of the sisters, the Catholic sisters, after she finished mopping up some vomit and, you know, they, they care for the sick and dying. The Sisters of Charity, the order is called. And uh, he asked the sister in this order, um, how do you do it? You know, how can you sustain this kind of work? And she said immediately, what work? You know, in a sincere way. And in that moment, and seeing her eyes in that moment, he saw how alive she was. Like, totally alive, free. And he realized he was a bit embarrassed by the question. You know, just the ignorance behind the question. And that's the thing about uh, compassion and about this basic goodness. It can't be a planned thing. It, in the same way when we inhale, it's not like, okay, I'll breathe in the life I'm ready to breathe in. I'm, I'll, I'll open to the experiences I'm ready to open to. No, we don't get to choose. We have to open to the moment that's at hand. We have to breathe it in. And then when we respond, it's like this is the moment that's arising in front of us to respond to. So what is asking for a response in this moment? Maybe later we'll save the world. But right now, what is the world asking for us? Maybe just to put our shoes away or to smile at somebody or, you know, to floss our teeth. And to not, because the rejection of that, like to, no, no, I can't, I can't give myself totally to that. That habit of misjudge or um, mistrusting what's being asked of us, it gets contagious. We'll always be mistrusting what's asked of us. So every time we give ourselves wholly to what's at hand, we come alive and we get better at giving ourselves totally to what's at hand. And we begin to experience that joy of generosity that Spruce talked about. So I'll leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. for the benefit of all beings. May the goodness of my practice be joined with all the goodness of all the virtuous actions from the past, the present, and future. And together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings. We'll have walking practice now. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.